Philippians 1. The most effective churches start with a vision or a dream. That is an outrageous generalisation. I'm sure that there are some great churches whose founding did not involve an actual dream. But God gave Tim a dream about St. Matt's before he ever came here. In fact, before he ever even came to Bath. I find when God speaks to someone through a dream about something to do with extending his kingdom, it's generally a good idea to take it seriously. A missionary friend of mine worked in Ethiopia for many years. And in those days, (coughs) Steve, if I lose my voice, it's entirely your fault. (coughs) I don't like to sing. Can I have the water on you? I don't like to sing before I preach because I lose my voice, but you picked such good songs. That went so well with the passage that I had to sing some of them, so it's his fault if I lose my voice. (laughs) So my friend worked in Ethiopia for many years, decades ago, and there was a remote warlike tribe in Ethiopia called the Bodhi, and they were attacking villages and stealing their cattle. Six Christian villages had been killed wholesale by the simple expedient of creeping up on them when they were worshipping in their church hut and setting fire to it, and then killing anybody who tried to escape. So the church elders were very um, struggling to know what to do about this. My friend called Malcolm spent a long time agonising with them about what to do. And eventually it was decided that Malcolm and two other missionaries one of whom was a helicopter pilot, would try to take the gospel to the Bodhi because everyone agreed there was nothing else that was powerful enough to change the situation. And maybe the Bodhi might not actually kill the white men when they turned up. So off the three guys flew, praying very hard. The helicopter pilot flew over the first village they saw and decided to land at the second, where, astonishingly, They were met by unarmed villagers. Never happens. As one of the missionaries started the formal greetings, which included a reference to the Creator God, a village elder stopped him and said, Yeah, 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 we know all about the Creator God, but who is Christosi? Five nights ago, he said, I was asleep in my hut when I was woken by a bright light, and a voice told me, I am Christosi. In five days, Men will come from the sky and tell you who I am and what I've done for the Bodhi. So we have been waiting for you. Tell us, please, who is Christosi? And the gospel was welcomed in that village and we trained evangelists and took the gospel to the next village and the whole tribe heard and the gospel brought peace. Philippi was that sort of church too. The church that starts with a dream. But it was Paul that had the dream. And in July, we're going to be looking at Philippians. I'm looking at chapter 1 today, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time as well as doing that, setting the scene, looking at Paul's dream, and looking at what happened when he helicoptered into Philippi, metaphorically speaking. 
And I'm also going to look at the troubles that he and the Philippians were experiencing um, at the time he was writing the letter. But most of the time, I'm going to be talking about some of the wonderful encouragements in chapter 1 that Paul shares with the Philippians. From how he starts the letter to a stunningly upbeat interpretation of the advantages of being in prison. And then reflecting on how that might encourage us today. So, first, how did Paul's relationship with the Philippians begin? Well, I've talked about this before, so apologies if you've heard me on this topic. He was in the middle of his second missionary journey, visiting all the believers in all the towns where he'd been first time around. At least, that was the plan. But things weren't exactly going to plan. Then one night, Paul had a dream about a man from Macedonia begging him to come over and help them. So Paul let go of his plans and followed God's. He went to Europe, and the first place they stopped to preach was Philippi. And you can read all about it in Acts 16. And in Philippi, a rich woman called Lydia, who already follows God, and her whole household come to faith. And Paul and his companion Silas get thrown in prison for healing a slave girl from a spirit of divination. And they're praying and singing hymns at midnight, as you do when you're in prison, when there's an earthquake and all the doors fly open. And the jailer's about to kill himself in despair until Paul calls out, Stop! Stop! It's alright, we're all still here. So then the jailer and all his household become Christians. And the very next morning, the magistrates chuck Paul out of town. And he has to go, leaving behind this baby church, pretty small, pretty diverse, and born into a town that has already decided Christians are bad news. But, despite that, it holds on to the faith, it grows, and it even supports Paul financially whenever they can actually get the money to him. But, judging by Paul's letter, they're still suffering persecution. And there's some sort of dispute or division going on, we'll discover in chapter 4 a bit more of that. And they sent one of their church family with some money for Paul, because they heard he's in prison, and this guy nearly died on the trip, so now they're worried about him as well as Paul. And Paul, well, he's in prison. It seems to be becoming a bit of a habit. Only this time he hasn't been rescued by an earthquake. This time it looks like he's in for the long haul. So, let's roll the titles. The introductions are over. Now we're ready to start reading the letter. So, there were conventions in those days about how you wrote letters, just like there are today. You started off by saying who it was from. Then you said who it was to, and then you said greetings. So things don't really change much. But Paul goes a bit beyond that in his letters. Typically, he starts by saying he's a servant and apostle of Christ. 
Here's Romans in the NIV. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel. 1 Corinthians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Galatians. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ. Should get the message. But not with the Philippians. They didn't need any proof of his authority. They knew he was an apostle. He'd flown into town on the wings of a dream and changed their lives forever. Paul knows that whatever he writes to them is going to be taken seriously. So to them, he just says, Paul and Timothy, who was his right-hand man, slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, in quite a few Bibles, including the NIV, which we heard earlier, slave is translated as servant. But it's the same word that's translated as slave in other places, including in Romans, when Paul talks about being slaves to sin. So Paul is starting really humbly. And then he says who he's writing to, very classic. He usually says something like, to all the saints in wherever it is. Saints is a great word. In the Bible, it never means people who are perfect or who do miracles, although they might do, or demonstrate great faith that the rest of us can only aspire to. It means people who have been made holy by God because they trust Jesus. That's all it is. Paul would write just the same to St. Matt's and St. Thomas. To all the saints in Wickham, he'd say. And that would mean you and me. Which is why some translations say things like God's holy people or God's devoted followers. To make sure that we know he means people like us. But in this letter, he adds something else. He says, together with overseers and deacons. And there's many ways to translate these words, as you'll see if you've got the Bible app and you flick through the different translations. Basically, he's specifying those who have overall responsibility for the church and those who serve in some way. He's honouring them by mentioning them specifically. But he's also underlining that this is a letter for the whole church, the leaders, the helpers, everyone. And then he goes on to say, grace and peace from God and Jesus. Now I don't normally bring much Greek into sermons, but the word for greetings in Greek is karine. The word for grace is charis. Paul is playing with convention and making it his own. It's a bit like, instead of saying hello, you say hallelujah. He greets his readers by reminding them of God's undeserved love, mercy, and the free gift of salvation. And he follows it up with peace, which in Greek is irene. But in Hebrew, it's shalom, which is more than just peace. It's about wholeness 
and well-being. So just in the way he said hello, Paul demonstrates humility, unity of the church, and he honours other people. And he reminds us of what God has done and how we can live as a result. And these are going to be themes that you're going to hear coming back over the next three weeks with Miles and Ruby and Tim. So, now we've looked at how he greets the Philippians, let's look at how he reassures them. Well, he's at pains to say he's not worrying because he's in prison, he's rejoicing. Hey brothers, he says, it's all cool here. He could be Lily, couldn't he? All the guards, they know why I'm inside, inside. And you know, it seems to spur the believers outside on to tell people about Jesus and what he's done for us even more than before. And even those believers who don't really like me and are trying to prove they're better preachers and teachers than me, well, they're just sharing the truth about Jesus as well. So that's cool too. I don't really care whether they like me or not, as long as they're sharing the good news. In fact, even if it all goes totally pear-shaped and I'm executed, I'm not worried. Because then I'll be with Jesus. Actually, you know, in some ways, that would be the best outcome for me. Because then I'd be with my Saviour forever. I'm not afraid of dying, no way. But I know that you want me to stay and live, and living means I can carry on doing what Christ has called me to. So if I don't die, I reckon I can reconcile myself with that too. And I don't want to see you again. I'll be so proud of you in Christ. I think that I will see you again. So don't give up. Don't let me down. Don't let Christ down. You keep on doing what you're doing, bearing fruit, by living how Jesus lived. And if you experience suffering, then you'll bear even more fruit. Because Christ suffered too. So then you'll really be living how he lived. It's a win-win situation, says Paul. Surely only Paul or Libby could be that upbeat about being in prison. Well, I actually spent the last weekend um, with a group of people, and one of whom was telling us how he'd recently spent some time shadowing the chaplaincy team in one of our local prisons. He told us about a young man who's come to faith inside. This young man was very excited to share a verse that God had given him when he was praying. Jeremiah 30, 11, he said. Don't you mean Jeremiah 29, 11? They said. No, Jeremiah 30, 11. I looked it up. For I am with you and will save you, says the Lord. I will completely destroy the nations where I've scattered you, but I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but with justice. I cannot let you go unpunished. Isn't that amazing? This young man was so encouraged, he knew he'd done wrong, and he knew that God was with him in prison. And he was getting a just punishment, but he was getting something better. God is still working in prison. You might be thinking, that's all very well and good, but we're not in prison, so how does any of this speak to us today? 
I was asking myself, myself the same question as I was preparing. And I thought, well, you know, we think our church is quite small in number. We are. We're not very impressive, we think. A bit like the church in Philippi was to start with. Let's face it, our building is a bit rubbish. We're not being persecuted, but we are surrounded by people who think church is pretty irrelevant. Financially, we're bouncing along the very bottom of what we need to operate. Hand to mouth, I think is what we'd call it. I wonder whether there are walls in our own minds that limit what we think God can do in the unpromising circumstances of our lives in this church, in Whitcomb, in Bath. Are we sometimes imprisoned by our own expectations? So let's go back to Paul's prayers in verses 3 to 11. You'll have noticed I'm skipping around the chapter a bit. What does he say to the fearful but faithful, sacrificial but suffering Philippians? Who I don't think are that different from us, really. He says this. I am confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Or as the message puts it, there has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the very day Christ appears again. Every time he thinks of them, he says, he thinks of them with joy. And he thanks God for their koinonia, their costly partnership in the gospel project. Koinonia is often translated as fellowship. A sort of Christian socialising, coffee and cake after church sort of thing. But that's not really what it means. It's much deeper than that. It's a practical, active partnership in something you believe in. It's closer to the sort of partnership Andrew and I had with our Christian business partners when we put all our savings in and they remortgaged their home so that we could start our business together. That's koinonia, all in, body and soul, livelihoods on the line. That's what Paul says the Philippians have with him. And he prays for them. Oh, how he prays. For love that leads to knowledge and understanding that helps them know how to behave in the world. For those of you who did the Holy Spirit stream in June, this is a prayer that they know God more fully and encounter him through his spirit. For those of you who did the ethics stream, this is also a prayer that they know how to live ethically. He prays for them to grow in holiness. They're already saints, 
but they can still grow more like Jesus. And he prays they'll bear fruit for the glory of God, fruit in their lives, fruit in their witness. This is how God is going to finish his work in them. Every day of their lives until they see Jesus. Isn't that what we want? What we need? More love. Powerful love that helps us to know God better. That helps us to live better. Love that bears fruit. And isn't that the sort of partnership we want with each other? Koinonia in the cause of the gospel. Sometimes I ask myself, do I believe that God called him to Whitcomb? Did he give him a dream for what we, as an expression of God's family, might become? And, and yes, I do. But do I, do we, also feel beleaguered by COVID, cultural indifference to the gospel, leaking roofs, holes in walls, the most ridiculous heating system ever created. Yeah, we do. But Paul says that God doesn't start things that he doesn't intend to finish. God began his work in each one of us and he will complete it. He began this work at St. Matt's and he will complete that too. Tim has often said that he has a calling to establish new ways of doing church within old frameworks. And he had a dream about founding just such a church in this tatty old building. We, you and me, we are the outworking of that dream. We might think we're unpromising material, that the church building is pretty unpromising, but God did amazing things with unpromising material in Philippi. He did amazing things even while Paul was stuck in prison. He did an amazing thing with the baby 30 years ago. He's doing amazing things in prisons last week. He's doing an amazing thing in that young man's life yesterday, just near the train station. He can do amazing things here in St. Matt's. And I believe that we really are called to be part of a new expression of church, a new expression of God's family here in this corner of our city. And I think that will look like living lives of love and unity and honouring others above ourselves. Lives that are evidence to people who don't yet know that our God really is real. Lives which demonstrate the unconstrained power of God to change lives. 
fear and trembling because of what God might do if I stop putting walls around him. I'm afraid, but I'm also excited. There's a poem, not by a Christian writer, but it sums up how I feel at the moment. I will not die an unlived life. I will not live in fear of falling or catching fire. I choose to inhabit my days, to allow my living to open me, to make me less afraid, more accessible, to loosen my heart until it becomes a wing, a torch, a promise. And I wonder, maybe the chaos of the last three years has given us a chance to stop holding on to our own plans so tightly, to stop doing things our way, to loosen our hearts, to let go and let God take over. And I think he's starting to do it. He's starting to do it in the youth, the unity and the love, honouring other churches working together. It's just burgeoning. Bricks, we had a plan for how to do it. Some things worked, some things didn't. So we're doing it all differently in September. If that doesn't work, we'll ask God, what do you want us to do now? I think it's starting to happen. So I'd like to challenge us today. Are you ready for the unconstrained power of God to be released in your life? To be released in this place? Are we ready to see the fulfilment of the dream of a new way of doing church here? So if you do, I'd like you to stand there and then I'll pray. Father God, we come before you now. We love you. Father God, as I look at my brothers and sisters here, I thank you for them. I thank you every time I think of them. I pray with joy. I think of them with joy whenever I pray for them. I am confident that God, who started this work in us, will bring it through to completion, in us as individuals and in St. Matt's. Because God, you don't start things that you don't intend to finish. I pray that you will fill us with love to overflowing, that we will experience and know your heart more fully through your spirit in us. Fill us, Lord, 
with your spirit. Help us to let go of your plans, of our plans, and hold on to your plans. It's even hard to say, Lord, so I'll say it again. Help us to let go of our plans and hold on to your plans. Pray that you would help us to know how to live well wherever you call us, in our workplaces, in our neighbourhoods, in our homes, in our church family. Those of us who are visiting today, I pray the same prayer for you in your church family. I pray for the fruit of righteousness in our lives. I pray for the fruit of the kingdom of God in our community. I pray for fruit when we succeed and fruit for when we suffer. I pray for the fruit of the Spirit to overflow in us. Pray that God will be given the glory by those who know him and those who don't because of our koinonia in the gospel, our humility, our unity and our love in Christ. Amen. band would like to come up now. Thank you. We're going to close with a time of worship. If um, you feel that like God is calling you to something new and exciting and you know what it is and you're worried or you don't know what it is and you'd like to, um, none of the usual prayer team are here tonight. But I'm here and Jamie's here and Andrew's here and Libby's here and there's other people. You're all full of the Spirit. Pick someone you know you trust. Don't go without having had someone pray for you if you feel that you need that. Um, if you've got other reasons you might pray, you've got issues that you're struggling with at the moment, or um, challenges that you're facing at work, wherever, um, we have a God who answers prayer. So talk to someone. Don't leave without being prayed with. Okay. Over to you. Over to you, Steve.